Social Media and Ourselves is produced by Diana Daly of the University of Arizona School of Information. If you know someone in class, you talk about them. This is a prank. I don't ever have this many notifications when I wake up. Well, looking back at it now, I do definitely regret that. This was such a violation of my privacy. We have all this information about us that's available online from our past. Just kind of exposing that my life isn't as perfect as I made it seem to be. You know, we want to create fear of missing out. Those norms really cut against what I see as the real potential of these technologies to help people. My family, my friends, everyone saw it. To me, this is an exceptional example of the ways in which social media can be used to lift us up. In the fall of 2018, I invited college students to tell me stories for a podcast about social media and themselves. Over a hundred students called in. They were funny, poignant, heartbreaking sometimes. They talked about drama, finding love, gaining followers, and losing friends. They navigated bullying, overnight celebrity, and catfishing. Meanwhile, they kept constructing their identities online and sometimes also learned to rise above them. In this podcast, we're going to hear some of these stories and try to understand the cultures and worlds that they reveal. It isn't just about Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, although these platforms do matter so much in these young people's lives. It's about learning who you are in an age when growing up is snapped and shared and open for comments. And you're in a generation that's had to figure out how to do it by yourselves. Sometimes we panic about the growing use of social media, especially when we hear stories about how young people's struggles play out online. To help us understand these experiences without panicking about them, I invited someone who studies how social media can help people. Dr. Raines, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work? Sure. My name is Steve Raines. I'm a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Arizona, and my work primarily focuses on the implications of new technologies for health communication. A lot of that work um, looks at things like self-disclosure and social support and how people who are uh, facing illness use these technologies like social media to respond. Dr. Stephen Raines is the author of Coping with Illness Digitally, published in 2018 by MIT Press. Today we'll listen to students' stories together and talk about what they mean for all of us. We'll compare cyberbullying to the bullying older generations grew up with, We'll look at why connecting online can seem terrible and then be wonderful when people need help. And we'll look ahead to our first Facebook president and why that will matter. Stay with us. How about the first one? I think the first one would be a great place to start. This was in the year maybe 2008. MySpace was like an Instagram, like a Twitter, and um, a Facebook where People could message on each other and they can like post pictures and stuff. If you know someone in class, you talk about them. But it started getting a little serious for my sister because she was struggling with weight problems. So my sister would 
after school, go on this site, talk to her friends about assignments, schoolwork, but then she started noticing that people were really talking about her in a negative way, saying how fat she was, saying that she couldn't fit into a doorway when she was walking into school. So um, school got involved, she told my parents, and obviously all those people got in trouble and the negative comments stopped. Sometimes social media can be a great force of communication, but in other sources, it can be bullying. It could be just cyberbullying. And when she actually talks about it now, she's 24 years old about cyberbullying. And she promotes that if someone has anything mean to you to say online, report it because people take that to heart and they can do something to themselves and hurt themselves over it. So there we had a story about MySpace, which is kind of a nice way to, a nice beginning, considering MySpace was one of the earlier platforms that people used to have this kind of talk, right, and to have this kind of communication. Well, to me, this this strikes me as the quintessential negative implications uh, of social media story. And I think that cyberbullying is unfortunately very common, uh, and it's an issue that young people deal with, and I suspect they'll continue to deal with in the future. It's also not a new thing in the sense that bullying's happened offline for a long time. But what I think is novel in this context is that social media now makes it public. Uh, it's public in the sense that before it would just be the bully and any people in the immediate surroundings who could view it. But now, because it's uh, on social media, multiple people can view it. It's also semi-permanent in the sense that um, once it's on social media, you know, you can delete it, but you'll find that um, people might have screenshotted it or other ways to document it, that it sticks around. And so I think this is, those are some of the ways in which cyberbullying is much more um, concerning, or particularly concerning, I should say. And, you know, you could see where it would have serious negative implications. Mm -hmm. There's an article titled uh, by one of my former students titled, uh, Following You Home From School. And the premise is that, you know, usually you would just get bullied at school or on your way home. But now it's, you know, once you're in the house, you're still subject to this negative behavior. And so that, that term cyberbullying, which is such an interesting term to me, because yes, indeed, bullying has existed for a long time. By making it into a new word, I've wondered if that's, if people think that makes it into a new thing. Um, and should we listen to that as people who study these kinds of behaviors. Is cyberbullying actually different by nature, or is it just different in terms of it's more visible, it lasts longer, it's more shared by, you know, by various kinds of, of people and, and publics that someone knows. But we could also consider, is it more damaging for the person who does it when they get a little older? And maybe that's a good segue to talk about another recording that's related to this one. In eighth grade, I knew this girl, we'll call her Sarah for this story, and we started as acquaintances. We shared a few classes, talked occasionally, and at some point I would have called us friends, maybe frenemies, because some days we talked like friends and other days it wasn't so friendly. There was this app, Kick, that was really popular when we were younger. It was like a messaging app that you could send messages and also photos and like emojis and gifts I think pretty simple app with simple layout but you could make as many accounts as you wanted as long as you had 
different emails. So I made an account first of this boy that I called Isaac. And in technical terms, I, I guess, catfished this girl, Sarah, just for fun. Um, it didn't go far, like... I didn't make her fall in love with him or anything, but definitely wasn't done with, like, great intentions. Uh, Looking back at it now, I do definitely regret that. I'm sure it probably hurt her feelings, because I did eventually tell her it wasn't a real person. Like, after that situation, our unfriendly conversations definitely got significantly more unfriendly. And one day, I created a spam account and spammed her phone with messages that sounded like it was a telemarketer almost for... The LGBTQ plus asking basically if she were a lesbian and like dumb stuff like that. Again, this was a very, very low point in my life. I then came clean because I did obviously feel really bad. Turns out she was bisexual, which I found out later on. And then fast forward a few years, we obviously didn't become friends because how could you become friends after that? Um, but we were cordial enough that we didn't glare at each other in hallways anymore. Definitely would not recommend being this awful to people. Very low point in my life. And yeah, social media as a kid influences your actions and having the ability to utilize different profiles and like hide behind profiles definitely makes it easier for teenagers to bully each other. Okay, so first of all, have you ever heard anybody tell a story like that? Not of being the bully, no. I mean, we we typically hear from victims. Um, My sense is the research that has looked at bullies has been mostly quantitative in nature and simply asks, have you bullied? Um, But not doesn't really dig into the details of um, what's happening to them and then also the long-term consequences of that. Clearly, this is an example of someone who was a bully but, but regrets it and feels bad about it. And it, it's not, you know, she says it's a low point for me personally. So I think this is an example of a place where I would like to see more research and more people thinking about this. What happens to the bullies long term? Absolutely. Yeah, her assertion at the end there that being able to hide your identity for young people as they're growing up, she concludes that that is responsible for some of this bad behavior happening. And that brings up this idea that cyberbullying is a little bit of a special thing. The students uh, in my classes, when they talk about these kinds of things, they bring up this term bullying and this other term cyberbullying so much. And they seem to hold it really closely to the core of their experiences growing up with social media. Yeah, I mean, one of the thoughts I've had is that another way I think that cyberbullying might be unique from traditional bullying is that there's a separation between the bully and the victim. In a face-to-face encounter, the bully sees the victim. The bully sees the consequences of their actions. It's very immediate. That doesn't occur online. You might say something nasty or create a fake account, but you don't necessarily get their immediate reaction. It raises questions to me about what's the bully getting from this? Are they experiencing the same gratification as they might in a face-to-face encounter, as odd as it might be to think about it that way? So I think, you know, in some ways these are different, and I think the medium does play a role, absolutely. They don't have to look anyone in the eyes. They're simply looking at a computer screen. There's some research suggesting that in some situations people are more inclined to 
uh, engage in self-disclosure. And what I mean by that is to share things that they might not be willing to share offline. Right. It's not a uniform phenomenon where you put somebody in front of a computer and they just spill their guts, but it is something where they feel more comfortable doing so. Part of it is we don't realize that when we're online, our behaviors are actually very much public. In some ways, they're more public than our public behaviors. And what I mean by that is we have a larger audience and it's permanent. So that also magnifies the potential for that audience to see it over time or to accrue over time. Those are things that aren't top of mind. We think it's just us and the screen when in fact it's not. And so I think that it might lead people to be more inclined to, to say things that they might not face to face, which could be hurtful. You're listening to Social Media and Ourselves with our guest, Dr. Stephen Raines at the University of Arizona. So considering the audiences, we could turn to a couple of recordings where people revealed things, whether intentionally or not, to think about what kinds of benefits disclosure can have, sometimes unexpectedly, and consider how these young people who are still learning these technologies and learning who they are, how they envision the audiences, I think is a really interesting question that is raised by some of the next recordings we're going to listen to. I went to Christian University last year before transferring here to University of Arizona, and I ended up having to leave because my anxiety was very bad as I was going through um, some issues that year um, and some things that happened um, in my family and stuff. And so when I had left, I disobeyed this social media norm where people always post about the positive things in life and like the perfect things and you know, what cool things are doing and everything, pretending that everything in their life is great. And um, I disobeyed that by posting about why I love you. I posted a whole thing about it, about anxiety and um, just being very raw and honest about my situation and just kind of exposing that my life isn't as perfect as I made it seem to be to um, express myself and to just be as open and approachable about anxiety and if other people were going through it. The result was very good. I got a lot of great feedback. There's actually a lot of people who have struggled with the same thing and I was able to talk to people and just be as open as possible about what I was going through and I got a lot of great support from people I had no idea even supported me. So yeah, that was the situation. So I gave these students prompts, um, which was probably clear from that recording. I thought it was interesting. There were other prompts. There there were a lot of prompts, over 30 of them. And this student chose to describe this in terms of social media norms. So is that understanding of a social media norm being everyone you know looking perfect, would you say that that's common or is that just in particular groups or publics or users? This particular um, story, I think, really resonated with me strongly because I think what's happening here is She's tapped into a sort of fundamental paradox I see of social media. On the one hand, social media has the potential to really allow us to connect with people in meaningful ways and in ways that we couldn't in the past. Because we're essentially broadcasting this information to our social networks, it could be a truly tremendous way to accrue things like social support. It's a great way to, to mobilize people to help me in times of need. The other side of that what makes it a true paradox, though, is we have norms 
that are very much in favor of presenting these polished and pristine images. We need to present our best selves. We need to reveal our lives to be things that others would want to live. You know, we want to create fear of, of missing out. And so I think those norms really cut against the, what I see as the real potential of these technologies to help people. And so she really captures that dynamic where she goes against that norm and she is able to accrue these social resources. She is able to make connections. And my sense is that this didn't just benefit her, but I, I, my guess would be it benefited those folks who read it as well because it made them realize, hey, there are other people out there like me. And so I think she was very courageous in sharing this information and I think um, cutting against those norms. Those are really good points, especially those unseen audiences that, that also benefit. That's something that I think you can forget about when you hear these as one to many, you know, broadcasting, but not what those many are, are experiencing when they receive the, that message. So there's another recording that I think really speaks further to that idea of norms in ways that we can see how these students might sometimes challenge them. So let's listen and discuss after. So I'm sure by now, mostly everybody knows what a fake Instagram or a Finsta is. I have one. Most, most of my friends have them. So usually I just post life updates or things I just don't want family members to see on there. Nothing out of the ordinary, really. But one rough week, I started crying. And I can't even remember what I was crying over. So that tells you it's not that big of a deal, but I'm dramatic. So I'm crying and I have this weird habit that when I cry, I decide I need to take a Snapchat of it and save it because I'm just an ugly crier and it's funny. So I take a picture and it's one of the worst photos of myself crying I have ever seen. And it's just funny. It's just funny to me at this point. So later that night, it's probably 2 a.m. It was a summer night. I didn't have any reason to be up early the next day. So I'm just scrolling on social media like anyone else does at that time of night. And I decide I'm going to post that crying picture on my Finsta. So I open Instagram. I pull up the photo. I make a caption. The caption was something like, why am I an ugly crier? Or something stupid like that. Nothing sad. I didn't really want anyone to know what's going on. The picture's just funny. And I figured my friends would think it was funny. So I post it. And I go to sleep because I'm like, okay, put your phone away, go to sleep. And I wake up the next morning and I have more notifications than usual. And I'm like, all right, this is a prank. I don't want to ever have this many notifications when I wake up. So I uh, open up my phone and I go to look. I open up my Instagram only to find out I had posted that crying photo on my main account that my family, my friends, people that I just really didn't want to see that photo of me crying. Well, everyone saw it because I had woken up at like 12 in the afternoon. So everyone who was going to see it had seen it at this point. And I'm like, oh my God, did I really do this? Like, this is, I can't believe this just happened to me. Like, what are the odds? Like, so I, of course, immediately am frantic and I delete it, but I will never forget never forget how many people reached out to me to see if I was okay, which weirdly didn't think that would happen. I just thought people would be like, haha, you're an ugly crier. But while I thought it was the end of the world, everyone was just worried of why I posted a crying photo. And well, I don't know why I posted a crying photo. 
All right. I love this one because of how playful students can be with social media, even when sometimes they regret it afterward. So thinking of that story in terms of norms, we've got two different publics here, right? We've got the the public of her real Instagram account. Um, sometimes I've heard that referred to as Rinsta. And that one, she talks about her real one being the one that her family and uh, her wider network of people is on. And then there's the Finsta public, which is people she's closer to, friends only, it sounds like. This is on Instagram, um, but we've got some pretty different sets of norms here, and there's one public where they're a lot more perhaps playful with them. What do you think about that? Yeah, managing multiple audiences or managing diverse audiences is something that's being increasingly looked at. Sometimes it's it's couched under the, the broader term of this idea of context collapse, meaning that everyone you know is now in your audience, and how do you adjust to those different groups? Um, and so one of the ways you do it is you have separate accounts, one for the friend group and then one that includes your family. Um, so I think that's certainly a one approach. The other thing that stood out to me is, is to me, this is the real beauty, I think, of social media. And it's, it's, unfortunately, it's one that doesn't get talked about enough. We hear a lot about negativity. We hear about social media and cyberbullying or identity theft or um, catfishing or all these other bad things. But this was one example of a way I think that social media can be positive and can be meaningful. What really stood out to me about this was that her phone, her notifications were um, rolling in uh, much more than she expected. So uh, she was struck by how many people were contacting her saying, are you okay? To me, that's really um, the beauty of social media and unfortunately something that doesn't get enough attention. Uh, One of the things I primarily study is people with illness, and and one of the things they'll tell you about social media and online communities in particular is that they're largely positive. They're places where they go to get lifted up, to hear about others who are um, faring well in ways that they can improve their health. And there's a lot of positivity there in those environments. I was trying to actually find instances of things you might call negative feedback in online health communities. So things like name calling or incivility, those types of things. And and I found two studies and what what they showed was that in looking at comments, they were extraordinarily rare. One, they did a content analysis. So they actually looked for instances of people saying mean things to others in a health community. And they found that it was less than I think 1% of the posts. Another was a survey, and in that survey, they asked people, how often do you get sort of negative feedback or hurtful feedback? And it was rare. It was less than 5% of respondents. So to me, this is really an exceptional example of the ways in which social media can be used to lift us up. It helps us to recognize that, hey, we have these networks out there of people who care about us, and they really are a click away or a picture away in this case. And just one more question about this recording. What do you think about her different ideas of how that would go down with her two different publics? Her idea, first of all, that one public was okay to share that with, that she intended to share it with that one smaller public, her Finsta, and that she thought they would think it was funny and that it ended up being shared with this wider public who responded in a way that she didn't expect Uh, Do you think that those expectations are something that you find surprising in any way? Or is that something that a person learns as they get older? 
Well, I mean, I think these expectations come out of the norms of the different groups. So if you have in your friend group where um, it's more expected to do things that are anti-normative, like crying typically is not a normative behavior. When we see people crying, that's an indicator that they're unhappy, they need assistance. And so maybe in a friend group, they would actually find the humor in that because they had talked previously about how there may be an inside joke about my crying face or something like that where that joke is not shared with the broader norms of the community and it actually cuts against it. And so I think in that case, this appeared to be, with the broader community, this appeared to be literally a cry for help and people wanting to know, hey, are you okay? You're listening to Social Media and Ourselves with our guest, Dr. Stephen Raines at the University of Arizona. So now let's listen to another recording that, as far as ideas about social media being a source of support, does make you have to reach a little bit more to think about what happens when it's introduced in ways that the first response to it can be kind of attacking, abusive, or violating in privacy. So let's listen to this recording and think about that. It was in the eighth grade when our school decided to have a so-called experiment and have one class be picked to be the E class, which meant we would do everything over technology. We Every student received an iPad and had to work primarily over the internet and over using technology. Um, I received this iPad and I never really was used to having, I never had an iPad myself and I never had an Apple device. So it was all new to me. It was very exciting. I was super happy that we were the chosen class for this type of experiment and you could keep this iPad and take it home with you, you know, do whatever you want with it. Um, And we had a shared iCloud for the whole class um, because we had to, you know, share our work that we do or that's the way the professor distributed any type of homework or assignment. And since I had zero experience with using an Apple device, I accidentally made my iCloud public, which meant all my personal photos that were on this iPad and all the embarrassing videos I made with my sister or just goofy pictures in general that I did not want anyone else to see went in this iCloud and was in the file where the whole school assignments or where anyone could see it that was in this iCloud. So my whole entire class. One day in class, we were all sitting there and we had to go into the cloud. A girl pointed it out to me and announced it to the whole entire class that I um, made my iCloud public and that there are personal videos and pictures in this cloud. So the whole class decided to go in the cloud and look at these pictures. And they not only just looked at the pictures, they saved some of these pictures and reposted them on their other social media pages, for example, Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, and mocked me for it. This was such a violation of my privacy and also a form of such disrespect instead of having these students come up to me and be like hey you know you should probably get all those pictures out before anyone sees it 
They took it for their own and used it as if it was their own without my approval. That was probably the worst thing that ever has happened to me using technology and social media. Okay, so one amazing thing about these stories is that these students are at a level now where they can reflect on these experiences. They've grown up with social media. And here's an example that is where it was introduced in a school context, in an educational context, and yet it comes across as though the students were all there by themselves with no supervision, no consequences in terms of this Lord of the Flies moment when suddenly everybody realizes that there are things that the student did not intend to be on there. And from her description, it sounds like the response was to grab as many of them as they could. What do you think about this story? A number of things stand out to me in this story. And one of the things I think that's unique about social media is that it's still relatively new and we're still trying to figure it out. And I think one of the things that's uh, I mentioned before that I, I, I find novel that applies here is the idea that it's public and permanent. And so that information is once it's online, I think she mentions that even after it was deleted, people had screenshot it and were still passing it around. Um, and so what I think is somewhat different than at least when I was growing up was that we have all this information about us that's available online from our past. So, um, you know, there's some controversy in the news over what happened in people's yearbooks from the early 80s. And if you think about it, the yearbook was the only document or, or maybe one of a very few where it had a record of your life in it. And if you think about what was in there, it was virtually nothing, right? It was maybe um, your, your picture and maybe the clubs you were in. But this, now we're documenting every instance of our everyday lives, and there's bound to be potential for embarrassment to occur. What I think is interesting is that over time, I suspect we as a culture are going to evolve to just accept that everybody has embarrassing things. These things that I know it's traumatic to the individual, but they're going to be less moving, big picture, long term, uh, as you know, this, this woman's picture of her or her videos with her sister dancing or whatever they were doing. Um, and so I think that one of the things that we're going to see is a broader acceptance of the fact that, hey, you know, people aren't uh, as polished as their Facebook page it currently appears, that, you know, they have things in their past where they had a bad haircut or, you know, they didn't have the greatest sense of style or fashion at some point in their lives. And what I'm going to be interested to see is when we have our first Facebook president, because that's going to be something where they have probably lived their life in public since they were, you know, as soon as they could use social media. And what is that going to mean big picture? And my sense is we're just going to evolve and begin to accept that this information about people that's, it's not negative anyway, it's just could be slightly embarrassing is out there and it's going to become more accepted that, hey, you know, people have things in their life that they're not proud of. I'm hoping that we're going to become more accepting when we realize that this is just a normal part of people's everyday lives and that it shouldn't be a, a reason to put others down. All right, let's listen to one more recording. I wish there was no social media when I was in elementary school because it sucks if someone ever posted that they were going to get ice cream or something or like if someone had to sleep over and some people were excluded. I just think that's, that was a cause for a lot of 
break up the friendship that when we were kids because people use that as um I want to say a disadvantage but or it's social media consequently um had people feeling left out because they would constantly post oh I'm getting ice cream or I'm having the sleepover if you're in elementary school like second grade girls can feel heartbroken if they weren't invited to something and then you see it on social media rather than in person. In this recording, going back to what you said about people who've been on their whole lives and maybe our our acceptance of people not being perfect evolving over time to because we'll see so many more imperfections as more of people's lives are online. Do you think we would ever be able to move backward in terms of social media being a norm for people who are younger and younger to use it? Considering this recording, considering that for very young people, it could be a painful experience, and this could be something that parents are seeing over and over, and yet there are always younger and younger people using it. In the Musical.ly app, it seemed to be that their main users were under 15 years old, and some of them were under 10 years old. So is that healthy? Is that something that if it's not healthy, you think it's possible we can move back from, or do we always just have to adjust to figure out how to deal with people being on there because there's no moving backward? I don't know if we can move backward, but I think that we have to move forward in a more a mindful way. I really do think this is all still very new. And I know that people who've been on uh, Facebook for 10 years might say, how is this new? But in, in, at least in an academic sense and in understanding the implications of these technologies, it is very much new. And so this is a place where um, we still have a lot to work to do to figure out, to offer guidance. You know, What is acceptable in terms of beginning to use these? What are the best ways to use these, the most beneficial ways to use these? How can we avoid things like this case of fear of missing out. We know that people like to use others as a reference point, not just to evaluate who we are, but also to evaluate how we're doing. And so what happens when I have so many reference points and they seem to be doing so much better than me, how do I respond to that? By understanding sort of the mechanisms and the ways in which that works, we'll be in a better situation to help people move through this point in their lives in ways that are more beneficial to them. Well, in the spirit of understanding how people use these things and and how we can stay involved with them as generations that are stewarding some of these technologies for younger people, it's really nice to have spoken to you about all of this and to get some of your perspectives on these kinds of stories and, and on things that people talk about when they talk about their experiences with social media, Dr. Reins. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a, a really a fantastic opportunity, and I've really enjoyed getting to talk about some of these issues. This episode of Social Media and Ourselves was produced by me, Diana Daly. Warm thanks to the students who shared their stories, and to the musicians whose work you heard, including Kai Engel, Susa Jot, Marach, Alan Spiljack, and Prism, PR1SM. Thanks also to the Office of Digital Learning for recording our interview, to Shane Stanzel and Luis Carrion, to the University of Arizona iSchool, and to Steve Raines. See you next time. <laughs>